In a world of art and entertainment, we often seek deeper meaning and overanalyze the presentation. Director Paul Verhoeven often uses B-movie genre as a vehicle for complex human emotions, social satire, and shocking sex and violence. Is this genius subtext for the artist's intent, or our own imagination looking for cosmic connection where none were intended? We call, we this, call dilemma this dilemma the Verhoeven effect. episode of the Verhoeven Effect. I'm Conlon. I'm Nathan. Yeah, we have a very special because we're live. Yeah, we're time. in the same room. <laughs> this, this happens once every, this is the first time, what, I've been here in two and a half years? Yeah, probably. I've never been here, yeah, yeah, actually. Been here, so yeah. This is in the new location, and put your address out there, because <laughs> nothing can go bad doing that. We didn't want to go too hard on this episode, because people were traveling and things were happening, so we watched... 1998 sphere <laughs> and we were rewarded for it um we learned a little bit about ourselves along the way <laughs> well i remember this being classically being a movie where it's like everyone says the book is way better yeah yeah oh yeah but i did read the book recently for the first time and i don't know the, it follows the, movie's the book yeah it follows the story the, i mean the book is better but that's because you get more you know, detail. That, yeah, you get that that fantastic Michael Crichton exposition that's like that immediately gets cut out of any Hollywood movie because it's it's waste time and most people are bored by it. How to cook in a heliox environment? <laughs> Why lab equipment won't work in a helium oxygen environment? I mean, it's but it's fun. It's not boring. It's like no. oh, I never thought of that and never will, but it's cool. Uh, and so, of course, off the. Uh, well, I guess this is going to be directed off Jurassic Park. I think Congo's like in the middle of there somewhere, but yeah, I didn't and tech the origin of those classics. <laughs> uh, but this does feel like, for a weird reason, it does feel like Jurassic Park just underwater for some reason. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it might even be like produced by Spielberg or something. For some, I think this is directed by Barry Levinson, who's probably most notable for Rain Man. The thing like wag the dog like at the exact like at the same time he was doing this movie yeah <laughs> um has had a great cast oh yeah yeah this is a fantastic cast uh cinematographer adam greenberg who most notable for he 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 was director of photography on both terminator movies terminator one and two. Oh, okay uh this reached february 13th 1998 so you know i think this movie's all right, a good idea, but like I think, like six months before this, you had Event Horizon. Yeah, which is not a better movie, but it's like a similar tone kind of movie in a way. Well, not really tone, but um, it's a similar kind of movie that just kind of ate its lunch in some ways. Yeah, um, it's it's kind of a, it's a, it's like a haunted house movie, but it doesn't really pay off. Yeah, yeah. Um, By the time you know what's going on, you're just like. Well, I got all the way to here, and this was the end of the journey. Okay, great. <laughs> Although the failing of the movie, where it's like it just kind of ends, and we're basically pretending like nothing ever happened. Yeah, it's exactly how it happens in the book. Yeah, so, <laughs> it's built-in disappointment. I have to say, like, of all the Michael Crichton books I read, this Sphere was kind of like, even though it was super interesting, it was the most disappointing Michael Crichton yeah. book I've read. So it seemed like uh, much like the movie, uh, you know. 
fiction, much like the movie work, the the fictional written work, kind of ran out of gas. It's like, <laughs> what's our idea? Oh yeah, it's it's a it, we're, it's it's imagination. Okay, great. There's so many different ways you could have gone with this premise. Yeah, and they didn't do it in the book or the movie. <laughs> this has a weird written by credit. It has Kurt Wimmer has an adaptation credit, which I don't know what that means. Huh. Uh, and then Stephen Hauser and Paul Antonazio, uh separately get screen screenplay credit, and then it's based on a Michael Crichton novel. Kurt Wimmer, we know from. He does a lot of like action movies. I don't know if you remember like Salt. Uh, he did the Equilibrium movie. He directed that. Okay, yeah. He writes a lot of like like sort of techno thriller, stupid techno thriller. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you ever. I never seen it, but you know, if you ever heard of seeing the or the trailer for Law Abiding Citizen. I've seen the movie. Okay, <laughs> so that's Kurt Wimmer. Yeah. Or, I... or if you remember that like Colin Farrell, the Recruit movie, which like Al Pacino. Yes. Yeah. Which is like cool, cool half a movie, and then becomes incredibly stupid. So that's Kurt Wimmer. It's like it's cool for a second, and then becomes incredibly stupid. Yeah, it's like Equilibrium was some of the best like action set pieces in a really convoluted story ever. <laughs> Some people act like that's like a meaningful movie. It's like no, it's just <laughs> vaguely cool, yeah. um, cool concepts, but the overall story, it's like, well, okay. What the Matrix was psychology, <laughs> and of course, this movie has a fantastic cast with Dustin Hoffman, Sharon Stone, Samuel Jackson, Peter Coyote, who's basically like, oh, that guy, guy, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Leo Schreiber, and of course, Queen Latifah. Yep. <laughs> for about 15 minutes. Yeah. Well, in the book, like here, there's like, there's two Navy personnel on this underwater base. In the book, there's like 30 people and they all die. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, because they have, um, you got the four scientists, you got Peter Coyote. I can't think of his name. Barnes. Barnes, retired Captain Barnes. Uh, and then you have. Uh, the Queen Latifah character is like their communications technician, repair person. And then you have another lady who's an archivist. And then you have the cook. She's also, you know, she plays a prominent small role. And it's like, oh, she's a cook trained to work in this insane environment. And then you have a third person. Or so you have another person who does something. But yeah, they all basically just die in short order. <laughs> they, they, they shorten that up. Yeah. So we have Act One. We have a really long opening credit sequence with like pictures of like you know twenty thousand leagues under the sea and a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. A fast forwardable credit sequence. Yeah. Yeah. You don't get anything out of it. It's just names and pictures. Look, we made a movie. Look at our names. Well, yeah. I know we have a big cast like that. Sometimes you're just like sometimes there's that kind of preamble. It's like, all right, everybody, get your popcorn. Everybody, you're in some, you're in for the for some entertainment. We're setting the frame. (laughs) Which I was confused by. There was a uh, a recut of Star Trek: The Motion Picture on Paramount Plus. And it was like, there's like 15 minutes of just a star field. I'm like, what the hell is this about? Nathan's like, oh, that's back in the day when they used to do that for, I think you're getting ready for a picture. But that was also like back in the day when you had like a one screen theater and stuff like that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was called the overture. Um, That's why I was also like, people were still coming to movies in a suit. (laughs) It was, it was a little, it was kind of a holdover from a formal more, because like Ben Hur has that. Yeah. Has like a 20 minute. 
but it's an actual orchestra, <laughs> like re- recording this song live onto the film track. I don't think they did that for the motion picture. I think it was pre-recorded, but yeah, uh-huh. that was uh, that's an old school way of doing that. And uh, then Ben Hart also has like intermission too. That's where you like you go off and smoke and then talk about what you've seen so far. Yeah. <laughs> They go talk to the dames. <laughs> uh, we have a helicopter flying over the sea, and I wrote that as being Jurassic Park-esque when they're flying to the park. Um, we got Dustin Hoffman as Norman. He's sleeping on the ride over, and he wakes up and talks to Huey, Huey Lewis, who plays the pilot. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't sing at all. No, just... just gives him the news. <laughs> or the lack of thereof. Yeah. And does a pretty good job, I guess. I mean, for a guy just yelling his lines <laughs> loud over a helicopter, it's like, yeah, he, yeah, I can see that. He looks the type. He's a psychologist, and the the helicopter pilot mentions that like they've been bringing all kinds of scientists out to the sea, and the, the Norman's told it's a plane crash, but the helicopter's guy's like, no, they didn't tell me that. <laughs> so yeah, there's like an armada of U.S. ships, although. I don't know what makes up an armada. You know, there's like nine really big, large ships out there, so that's enough. Then we get titles. It just says the surface, which this probably correlates to the the novel. I know the novel has like headlines for every chapter and stuff or something like that, but I can't remember if it correlates here. Yeah, it's the same kind of stuff. Like for every five chapters, we're changing location like that. Yeah, which makes the movie. Which I don't. Know, this probably is what makes the movie the weirdest. Is that like it moves along very quickly, but it feels very disjointed somehow. <laughs> yeah. Because, well, some of those like the surface, the deep, the you know, the alien or the ship. Or, it's like you're expecting like, oh, the story's moving forward. But it's like, no, it's just the same story. <laughs> just have this title card in there. Uh, it's like, oh, is things going to change now? No, they're not. It's <laughs> Oh, yeah, I forgot to ask. Like, do you have any history with this movie? Like, do you remember? Do you remember seeing when it came out or anything? I watched it. I didn't see this one in theaters because I remember there was like an initial like, oh, it's like hot lava. Like, don't grab this handle. This is yeah. a bad, bad movie. So I was like, well, I'm not gonna go spend thirty bucks to <laughs> see that at the theater or whatever it cost then. So I was familiar with the book from years ago, uh, years earlier in high school. The book was like what 1987. I can't remember. Let me look that up. I think it's an 87 book. But yeah, I, thought, I remember. I thought I heard 97, but that I could be completely wrong. Yeah, I remember it uh, reading the book when I was younger, like in high school. Because I read all the Michael Crichton books because they were all cool. Yep, 87. Okay. okay. Okay, that makes some of the weirdness of the book make more sense now. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of... We have a whole gigabyte of memory in this station. It's like, wow, really? uh, Well, stuff I thought was where there's a lot of things where it's like you have like a black mathematician and like he's talking about like, you know, the the plight of the black people, you know, from Michael Crichton's perspective. So it's kind of just weird and disjointed where it's like, I guess you're, yeah, okay, you you have your observations, Michael. But, um, and there was, there was a weird one where like Beth was talking about like, not knowing what Medusa is, and he's just like, this far flung in the future, like now, now science is overriding myth. I'm like, the f- are you talking about? Oh my God. We've forgotten our dreams, our <laughs> our fantasies of horrible things that will kill us. <laughs> we need those. We need to hold on to our myths. 
and, and like the Beth character in general is also just kind of like seems to be poorly written because it's like, well, she's the woman, so she's going to be the weak point, and she is in the movie. <laughs> so I and, and in the well, in the book, because I just I just re-listened to the audio book, and in the book it's like. Oh, you're saying in the '80s that she's like looks like a lesbian. Like yeah. it's just this very muscular woman who <laughs> is not portrayed that way because it's like no, she got divorced and she kind of you know is upset with her ex husband and she feels like yeah they don't take women seriously. But then you act like a nut through the whole novel. It's like <laughs> well maybe there's a reason why, or at least in your case, why they're not taking you seriously. Yeah. Uh, there was no romance between her and Norman in the book. No. Uh, I mean, there's barely as here other than they had a previous relationship. Yeah. That was associated to somebody else, but it wasn't a lot of the team. It was just somebody else that, like, took credit for people's work. Um, I don't think they're on the team, though. No. Well, because they also had, like, a fifth scientist, but he, like, was barely in the book, and then he became claustrophobic on the trip down, so they had to bring him back. <laughs> and it's like, well, that was it. Okay. <laughs> so that, that thread's not being followed, not in the movie, but in the book that was there. <laughs> So they did streamline this movie a lot, but they still yet made it a boring cinematic experience. It's still a long movie, even though they streamlined. <laughs> yeah, and it's not fun. Well, see, I remember, I remember watching, I remember hearing bad things about it, and then I saw it like on cable, and I thought it was a cool movie, but mostly because I'm more enticed by the idea than rather than the execution. Which now I can see the flaws of the movie now watching it, but still a cool idea that wasn't pulled off. No, uh -huh. they didn't pull off. So yeah, Norman thinks he's gonna like be administering like help for like post traumatic patients or something because he's told there's a plane crash. Uh, Liev Schreiber shows up. He's Ted, the astrophysicist. We have Beth, played by Sharon Stone. It's like uh, they recognize each other. They see each other for like half a half a moment. Yeah. Uh, then Norman's escorted away by the Navy guy Barnes. He's played by Peter uh, Coyote. He's part of the. Oh, he talks about the ULF. It's like the, I can't remember what it's called. It's like a it's like a mythical report of like what happens if we discovered an alien life form and like yeah. what would the, what would the team that we've put together? And that's what Norman's here for is because he wrote up the report. Although yeah. This report has existed in fiction uh, as a fiction device in a lot of novels. Yeah. It's how you get that non-military non like every man character who's, also like a genius at whatever he does. And he wrote this report and he's like, they just paid me money for it. And I filed it away. It's I have heard this exact <laughs> same scenario in, I think they did it in footfall, which is a science fiction novel, a couple alien contact novels. It's always like the writer creates himself as this character. And it's like, yeah, the government paid me to do that's why, that's why they're bringing this guy in who has no knowledge of, yeah, you because know, the astrophysicist, the mathematician, like, they make sense. Yeah. The biologist makes sense. Psychologist doesn't really make a lot of sense to, like, yeah, we're going to send you in the most dangerous <laughs> environment known to man. Well, it's well, I mean, it's fun to send the psychologist because it's like, well, he's a smart person. But in this instance, it's, he's he's the most useless and dumbest person. So he gets to ask the, sur the audience surrogate questions because yeah. he doesn't know. Right. <laughs> But yeah, this mythical report about alien contact has been a trope of science fiction writers, I think, since the 50s. Yeah. It's like, we're always bringing this guy in. Well, you wrote this report, and it's always the same thing. I thought it was a joke. I, <laughs> always the same. This is not This is not an original idea at all. I just ripped off the government with my, with, my, with my fantasies. Yeah, if you've read any kind of 
science fiction from any era that this always exists. Although I do think in the book there's something where like Norman's like the last guy in the book because they emphasize in the book where he's like he's like 50 years old and he's out of shape compared to everybody else and he's like he's like the last psychologist on the list because for for some reason they take him and it was like well you could have died on the descent down because your health isn't good enough yeah <laughs> you managed to survive yeah so the, the reports about a possible encounter with an alien being there's a giant airplane slash spacecraft that's crashed on the ocean they determine it's like 288 years old uh samuel jackson the mathematician harry uh is there he's like he, he does the math of like 288 years so you know he's a mathematician because he can do addition and subtraction yep um uh here are all the scientists ridicule psychology but don't get the the explicit per so like so it's a spacecraft yeah but then it happens to have a giant like tail on it, like it's meant to be an aircraft. Yeah, because they say it's just like this wing surface that's three hundred feet high or something. Yeah. But then they never like. Well, yeah. the, well, and that's how it's described in the book. But also in the book, there's like this was built in space. It's like, why would a spaceship need a wing? Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it looks cool when you get to look at it. So. Well, also in the book, they take a side trip. They spend a lot more time in the spaceship and talking about it because it's like, oh, look at all these cross braces. It's incredibly because Barnes is, has a is an aeronautical engineer from MIT or something. Yeah. Uh, before he was a captain of a space or a navy ship, space starship. <laughs> um, so yeah, they had a, but they're talking about like all the lead and stuff inside it, and it's like, oh, this thing must have a tremendous power plant to move this thing. And uh, but they don't don't really go into that in the book. Yeah, yeah, they, they yeah, in the book or in the movie. I in mean. the, yeah, in the movie they spend like maybe like fifteen minutes in the spaceship. <laughs> yeah, and in the book it's like half the book. <laughs> like they're always going back there, but it's also always changing when they go back there. And then we have a, the teams being interviewed about their health. Uh, this is where Norman tells Harry that his report was a fraud. He just like picked people he knew. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, which that that wasn't in the book, so this this whole scene is improvised by Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> uh, but it's a fun scene. Yeah, um, I mean, it just establishes the cast. Yeah. Uh, then they have to go for a saturation dive. Uh, makes the danger of decompression is explained, uh, which they got to do in every kind of these movies. So I like that. There's always like this like tremendous like action under the sea stuff that has really cool and then always fails at the box office. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't seem to work out. Um, it's like Abyss is such a cool movie and nobody saw it. Well, not nobody, but you know. It wasn't, uh, yeah, it's not remembered as... Uh, it's like the least successful James Cameron movie. Yeah. And the fact that people almost died making it was it's like even more sad because it's like Ed Harris almost lost his life over this movie. And no one's seen it. So I have that being the end of Act 1, so we know that there's, you know, hey, there's a giant spaceship in the ocean. It appears to be very old, so let's go there and look at it. So we have Act 2, got titles, The Deep, the team boards a diving sub, uh, they head a thousand feet below, uh, they see the tail of the spaceship, it's like, it's huge, <laughs> it's absolutely gigantic, they have it lit up. Because uh, I think like the ship's supposed to be like, was it supposed to be like a mile wide and just even longer or something like that? Yeah, it was, it was a mile long. Oh, okay. I'm not sure how wide it was, like two football fields wide or something, it was... <laughs> It's massive. Yeah. You know. The Navy set up like an undersea base down there. 
uh, apparently. Which, I don't know. Like, how long would it take to just, like, hastily assemble a base in the ocean? <laughs> I'm not sure. It, it seemed, uh... Or in the book, was it just already there and just happened to be by it? No, they'd have to put it down there. No, in the book, it was uh, um, a, a sea, a cable-laying company. Yeah. was laying a communications cable, and it got hooked on the wing. Yeah. And uh, and then they came and set up a base. Uh, apparently, that stuff was, like, ready-made to go, and they just had to send the guys out there and drop it to the bottom. But in the okay. book, it's all fraught with technical problems, <laughs> and it's not very good, and it's... um. Because they they talk about in the book several times, it's like yeah, anyone who's tried to go down this deep for any length of time, they're they're always get killed. It's a good way to kill a lot of people, <laughs> uh, and, and that's actually true. Um, but that's why people go down, you know, in the diving suits and do things, and then decompress on the surface for a week or whatever. Yeah, so there's just two personnel working on the base. For like I said in the book, it's a bit more, but here they gotta <laughs> they gotta roll through. It's like no, we need less people to kill. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the team decompressed with helium, and it's kind of a funny scene because all their voices get high pitched and everything. And then Barnes like, "Ah, quit f-ing around. Put on your voice modulator," <laughs> which you don't see. I, I don't know. Is that a thing that happens? I yeah, I don't. I don't know much about saturation diving. <laughs> I know there's like nitrogen. There's a term for it, like nitrogen poisoning or nitrogen mean? psychosis. Yeah, that's heard that before. It's 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 like yeah, because under pressure. It because beca- of how the gas reacts, it becomes like a drug that affects your brain. So you substitute helium, but the problem is helium dissipates heat so much faster than oxygen or nitrogen. Like you could, you you would just um, you get hypothermia. <laughs> That's why everything has to be heated. And I know, I know, like I know there is something called triox, which is oxygen, helium, and a little bit of nitrogen, but not the same mixture that you're would encounter at sea level but that's i don't know how it all works yeah. i think i think in the book they explain that like they basically have to get the oxygen level because air is a mixture of oxygen nitrogen and some other stuff yeah mostly nitrogen but yeah um and but they have to like they have to like make a mixture that's so like low in oxygen for them so like their bodies can work down there and they just have to acclimate to it but like uh it becomes more fraught with with panic in the book because anytime they have to like exert themselves and then like reiterate the point it's like oh you don't know how hard this is on like this low of oxygen at this <laughs> this pressure and all that stuff. well you're essentially doing what's uh, un, un, under that you're doing what the the medical term is like chain stokes breathing where you're just forcing your diaphragm in and out <laughs> like it's not happening completely naturally so it's very exhausting <laughs> again a lot here we're talking about the the cool, you know, details of the book and not so in the movie. Yeah. In the movie, it's like everyone talks like Mickey Mouse and it's funny. <laughs> but uh, if they went to the surface suddenly, they would explode like a like a water balloon, you know, <laughs> dropped on the pavement. Um, the team discussed, like, potential powerful aliens, like, whether it's intended or not intended, like, the, you know, like, what is this thing? Is this a... Trojan horse or what is it? Uh, and we got titles, the spacecraft. And so the team are in dive suits and they make their way over to the spacecraft. They get in an airlock and like they pump out the water. And so now they're like next to the, 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 an, an entryway to the spaceship, but it's like, it's in air now because they pump the water out. It's got like a little tube thing that's connected to it so they can do that, you know, cause they're like those docking things on 
in space and stuff like that. Yeah. And hearing this, you know, because I was like Navy divers did that mysteriously before they got there and they, they f***ed off. So. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they had to go blow up some <laughs> some Middle Eastern country. Yeah, they had other things to do. <laughs> uh, Beth just kind of touches the door and opens. Oh, I think, well, I, first there's the, the point of like somebody saying like, oh, this has to be super strong. I mean, that's like never corroded for 300 years. Uh, and then someone says it's soft and then, and then Ted like kind of bangs on it with a chisel and it breaks. And then like, and then, uh, Harry's like, why did the impenetrable steel just chip when he hit it with a hammer, which they never, they yeah, never they don't come that. back to that. <laughs> it's like, how oh, did the coral like leach some important thing out of it as, <laughs> as it was growing on it? Now it just never, it's never explained. <laughs> Uh, and then Beth kind of touches the door and it opens for her. And they're kind of mad at her first. Like, don't just do things. <laughs> so the ship is absolutely huge. So the team split up, splits up. Uh, you know, the soundtrack has a very kind of ominous kind of horror movie thing to it. So, you know, you're expecting something bad to happen. <laughs> uh, Beth and Norman, like, kind of accidentally operate an elevator. And they're kind of brought up to, like, I don't know, like, sort of like the, like the bridge or something like that. I think, I don't know, there's chairs up there, there's video displays. It seems to be, yeah. The ship's hull is like a combination of steel and rubber. Ted finds English and Spanish writing that says like trash and basura on there. And they're like, trash, basura. And like a really like idiotic, like, 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 I can't believe it says English and Spanish. Like, what does it mean? It's like, I don't know, dude. (laughs) Looks like it's English and Spanish. Do the uh, aliens know English and Spanish? <laughs> 300 years ago? Uh, I mean, it is a conundrum, but I just, I, I find that, you know, these scientists incredulous at that moment. Yeah, right? people with like 160 IQs <laughs> just blown away at the. <laughs> Trash, what does it mean? <laughs> Beth and Norman find a body, it's human. Uh, they figure out that it's an American spaceship that's 288 years old. Beth accesses the computer logs, and there's like holographic. It's like a holographic touchscreen. And again, this is 98, so you know some of the CGI effects are decent. They're very sparing with what they do, so they don't like look too bad. Right. <laughs> but yeah. they are kind of aged. <laughs> and here, but there's there's a bunch of log entries, and one of them says "unknown entry event," and then there's like a holographic projection showing the ship fl- flying through space and into a black hole and through the event horizon or you know as our understanding of it at that time um so it looks cool but it doesn't look as cool as interstellar so (laughs) well now here's another divergence from the book because in the book they find someone sitting in a chair and they're like oh look at the body there's no decomposition and then they look closer and they realize it has cables running from it it's some kind of robot (laughs) it wasn't a human body in the book which means they sent it into a black hole on purpose. Yeah. Which is not really made clear in the movie because it doesn't have to be, but Oh yeah, yeah. There's the mystery of the plane is never solved in the movie. No. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, this whole movie's invalidated by basically what is a a slightly more complicated it was all a dream. <laughs> yeah. Although here in the movie they do have the extra mysterious thing of like Okay, they forget the sphere, but then everybody sees the sphere fly away. So what does that mean? <laughs> Apparently nothing. So, but you know, it's a bit more than what you get in the book. <laughs> well, once they suss all this out, it is interesting. Like 
Samuel Jackson makes a cool point is like, so this ship's been here 300 years. It's an American spaceship. It's from the future. And we know about it. We didn't tell anyone. They didn't know it was down here. So that means we're dead. It's like just immediately jumps to like, we can make that leap to logic immediately. Which makes his character both cool and weird. Exceptionally weird. Yeah, like this jump to the worst possible thing. Well, I'm dead. Anyways, have you guys read this book? Yeah. Um, Try some of these eggs. (laughs) It's amazing. Barnes calls and they they go to look at the sphere, you know, the titular sphere. It's a golden sphere with like a liquid metal surface. Although that's what it looks like. Although some other descriptions it says like it's almost like mercury, but mercury is liquid at this temperature. It's like, dude, it looks like liquid. Yeah. <laughs> so there's like, I think there was a disconnect there between like you know the the special effects department and the you know the the written dialogue. Yeah, because they're just looking at like some black thing with lights on it in real life. <laughs> And like, yeah, this might, which you wouldn't speculate on. And it's like, this could be the surface of Mercury or a Mercury like surface. Like, it could be anything. It's alien. <laughs> and if it's Mercury, it's really toxic. You need to get out of there. Well, I read some trivia that said that, like, in the book, it's described more as a silver sphere with, like, some sort of kind of like basically, like, kind of like almost machine like stuff on it. You can tell, like, occasionally it seems yeah. like, oh, this was built. Um, here it seems more like more of a weird like metallic organic thing but i heard that they tried to make it like a silver sphere but like when they were filming it it just came off as like pure black in, oh okay in, like un, under the uh in the film and so they had to like change it to make it more which like they should have stuck with because then <laughs> when you heard the people describing it and you're not seeing it then you could have established that dreamlike dissociation, <laughs> but now everyone would get hung up on it. It's just a crappy special effect. It's like, no, it's supposed to create a, an air of wonder and, and dissociation. But no, no, that doesn't doesn't fly. Yeah, so yeah, Barnes is worried it's a trap. So like that's the thing in the book where Barnes is always like the guy who's like thinking about defense first, and all the scientists are like, no, this is a wondrous new thing. We've met a new alien life. We need to like study it and cultivate it. And Barnes is like. This thing could kill us all. <laughs> uh, he wasn't like, wrong. Yeah, Barnes is right. <laughs> um, then I, I don't I don't know if they do this in the book or not, but there's a cool moment where uh, Norman's like pointing out, it's like, hey guys, this is kind of weird. Why is it reflecting everything but us? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, which I don't remember that that being a point in the book, but it's a no. I don't think that was ever. Again, like you said in the book, it was more like this kind of weird-looking mechanical sphere that yeah. is like. But then the movie it takes on this like T one thousand quality yeah. of like, well, what is this liquid metal, <laughs> and how is it reacting to us? And then we have titles, the analysis. So the team are eating and speculating on what happened to the spacecraft. A computer message comes in saying there's a storm, a Pacific cyclone. Uh, it's coming in, so the Armada leave. Uh, Ted wants to stay and observe, but everyone's else like, no, let's get out of here. It's an American spaceship. Like, <laughs> it's like mystery solved. It's like, and he's like, that, no, that's there's a little bit more to it than that. But, but you know, that's I, I, that's like the fun thing about. I guess it's a fun conceit, but it's also like, it's it's always like convenient that the thing the most like 
you know important discovery in the lifetime has like this ticking time clock on it it's like yeah we can only observe it in this one time and it's gone forever <laughs> so we have harry and norman discussing the sphere norman thinks it's alive because it chooses what it, what to reflect and then he says like just kind of coldly it's like we're all gonna die down here you know <laughs> and uh this is where he he describes it like it's like this ship's from the future right norman's like yeah it's like well, the last entry says unknown event. So obviously we never told anybody about the spaceship. So we all died down here. I, I guess I was consistent with like the time paradox of the time, but even the book, they speculate that this could be from a different universe. So that isn't necessarily a, yeah. a, a, um, paradox for the movie. It's like, this could be a separate universe that the ship is from. And so it doesn't matter whether it's from the future, it's from a different future. So yeah, yeah, you're not bound by um, what's that called? The so like grandfather paradox or something like that. Like you go uh, back in time and kill your grandfather or something like that. Yeah, there's yeah, this is more like a multiverse thing. Yeah. Instead of a causality, yeah, you okay. don't have a causality violation because it's <laughs> from a slightly different, uh, almost indistinguishable future. But it doesn't mean that like yeah, this has to follow in a linear fashion. Yeah. Uh, alarms start going off. Harry's, they see Harry's on the video. He's like approaching the sphere. Harry's image like reflects on the sphere and then it kind of like crawls up the sphere in a very kind of weird like, yeah, <laughs> effect. <laughs> odd pancake effect. Yeah, yeah, he looks, yeah, he looks like uh, Judge Doom from, <laughs> from uh, Frame Roger Rabbit when he gets flattened by the, the uh, steamroller. <laughs> Might have been intentional. We don't know. And then, like, he just kind of disappears for a moment, and then Norman gets his suits on, runs in there, and then he finds Harry just kind of appears unconscious in front of the sphere. It, like, materializes. Like, just... <laughs> and then you see, like, Norman's reflection kind of appear on the sphere and crawl up in the same way, but then the power goes out, so nobody sees that. Uh, the power line from the surface gets cut, and the armada leaves. Harry's asleep back at the station, then we cut to titles, the power... Norman's drinking some tea. A jellyfish goes by the the, the front of the window. Uh, Fletcher, played by Queen Latifah, she goes out to take. There's like a data dump that they bring to an emergency sub that, like, if they don't reset it every twelve hours, it automatically goes up to like at least give the surface an idea of like what happened after the the last data that the, that's in there. So they set that up. But then uh, jellyfish start going up, start just appearing out of nowhere. Um, and at first she's like, oh, this looks beautiful. And then they just start grabbing her, stinging her. And then eventually they just like rip open her suit and then she just drowns inside the suit. So Yeah. Uh, in the book, it's a thing where it's like, they didn't have time to build a morgue down here. And so they just like float to the surface. But here they bring him inside and do like an autopsy on him. So, and like the, the, the puppet they make of Queen Latifah, you know, looks horrifying. You know, it's like, oh yeah, she died in extreme pain and drowned. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah, this is the weird thing because Norman, like, because like the, her death is being broadcast throughout the station. Yeah. And Norman's just kind of sitting there drinking tea like, huh. It's <laughs> a hell of a thing. <laughs> but she's like the most emotional person. Like, uh, has to consider like, it's like, no, this is a bad thing. But here it's like weird, but. I think that uh, if you go back, if you, you know, upon a second viewing, it's like, okay, Norman went in the sphere. Coming out of the sphere makes you weird for a bit. <laughs> like, you're not attuned to emotions for a bit. <laughs> Although it seems that, like, 
Harry really never gets his emotions back. So he's just weird the whole time. But they also explain he has been a genius his entire lifetime. So yeah, yeah, like he graduated what MIT when he was seventeen yeah. or something. Yeah. <laughs> and then you start, you see the some code pop up on the computer for a bit. Uh, we have Beth performing the autopsy, and then Norman standing by. Uh, he tells a story about like a he had like an encounter with a jellyfish when he was a kid. I think it's different the book. Different the book, and then like his brother died from a jellyfish. Oh no, his brother just got stung by jellyfish. Oh, he got stung by jellyfish. His dad told him not to jump off the boat, and he did. Oh, okay. And he was surrounded by jellyfish in Florida, and he was just in agony because they were all over him. But oh. he didn't. You know, he didn't die, but it was very. It established a strong memory. Oh, okay, I thought there's something with like his brother in the book, but he's just like my brother's dead now. But then the story he tells about the traumatic event. His brother doesn't die in the event. It's just that he's an old guy and his brother's even older. So oh. he's just <laughs> Yeah, he didn't die like when I was 16 in front of me. No. He was eaten by a giant eel or something. And then here Barnes confronts Norman. He has he has like stolen notes from his from his patient sessions with and he learns that Beth was like had a suicide attempt. So like Barnes is just immediately is like what's this f***ing crazy lady doing now she's gonna kill us all it just comes out of nowhere i mean it makes it it shortens a lot of things really quickly but it makes no sense whatsoever. yeah it's part of the problem with the random storytelling in this movie where <laughs> just big details pop out of nowhere it's seemingly unrelated to anything else yeah uh, here we have harry's awake and he's eating breakfast enthusiastically He's also, he's still being cryptic. It's like, yeah, we're all going to die here, die down here, but like, it's going to be cool, whatever happens. <laughs> uh, Harry eats calamari and then it gets revealed to him and then he starts like, kind of act, acting like he's choking and then he just says like he hates squid. I think, I think it was Norman S. Like, it's like, hey, you said we're all going to die down here. Do you still believe that? <laughs> he just goes, you afraid to die, Norman? <laughs> <laughs> Which is like a big trailer moment for this. Yeah. Yeah. Samuel Jackson does like a great job with like what little things they gave him. And he makes he makes the most of that character. Which one thing I thought really, I didn't realize that Samuel Jackson is the same age as our dad. <laughs> oh, is he? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> we have Norman and Ted talk. Ted thinks Harry's like hiding information so he can like publish a book. Because this goes into like Ted's like insecurities about like astrophysicists that they don't like do anything by 35 they never will so yeah <laughs> so and then but then edmunds pops up she, she's the remaining like kind of like crew member of the the station and she tells them that they need to look at the computers and we have titles the first exchange they talk about a saturation effect which i don't really know what that means but harry spots it like if it was a saturation effect it, would, it wouldn't it would be random but he finds a pattern somehow that that nobody else picks up on. Oh, you, they think the chips are going bad. Oh, okay. Because in the book, they described how all the computers and screens were in these huge enclosed boxes. And uh, and they said that, like, yeah, the, the uh, helium, uh, high, high helium environment plays hell with uh, microprocessors. But it has something to do with the, how heat is dissipated and all that. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, all the computers are in sealed boxes. Not evident in this movie in any way, but it's just, just like yeah. But they're able to like, they convert the the they find the pattern. They convert it to binary. They see like word breaks. They convert it to like a keyboard and a like as if it was like a keyboard wrapped around a sphere. 
Which I don't know, seemed cool seemed cool in the moment, but kind of a reach. Yeah. How quickly they put it together. It's a lot of deductive things going in one direction. <laughs> ah, the Sphere keyboard. Ah, the movie's <laughs> called Sphere. Wow. Uh, and so they get they. That MIT education's really paying off, Doctor Freeman. <laughs> um, the first message they get that says, "Hello, how are you? I am fine. What is your name? My name is Jerry." And Barnes wants a last name for Jerry, so when he writes a report, it's like, I'm not writing a f***ing report that says Jerry the alien. <laughs> <laughs> they type a message message back where they ask, like, where he, where Jerry's from. They get, like, a, evasive answers, and they then there's just, like, kind of random one that says, I am happy. And here, this is a good note, because, like, Norman, it, like, points out the whole thing that nobody's thinking about. It's like, you know what? You know what would make me happy if Jerry had no emotions whatsoever. They're like, why? It's like, well, if Jerry can be happy, what happens when Jerry gets mad? Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is a great, like, kind of sim- simplistic thing. You know, that's what makes the 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 scienceless psychologist like the great person to ask all the questions, the simple questions. Right. He's like, hey, like. You know, I, if I was in this situation, I might ask that question. It would be an important thing. Because <laughs> the smart people aren't asking the question. Yeah, they're just jumping to conclusions. <laughs> I, I want to do this one step at a time. Uh, so we have titles, The Monster. Uh, they show a, a, a sonar screen, which nobody's manning. <laughs> and there's a giant squid on there, obviously. And uh, Edmonds is outside. And... Norman and Beth like rush to get her back, but then they find her like crushed to death, uh, Edmonds. And then, then they cut to Harry reading 20,000 leagues under the sea. Um, and then giant squid eggs start falling. And then Norman and Beth are running from the, from the squid as they try to get to like the, the habitat entrance, but they're also killing, carrying Edmonds body with them. So it's a pretty tense scene. And also they're like slipping on the squid eggs as they step on. them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good. Weird. Like practical, like, weird sea life in this movie oh yeah yeah it looks gross and strange <laughs> um and then suddenly the giant squid disappears from the sonar um so we have titles battle stations they go to talk to jerry but uh they find out that jerry can just hear them so they don't have to like type to them they can just speak out loud uh jerry's getting angry the giant squid is back uh the, the, apparently the base has a shock defense that it can put out, but when they activate it, it'll create electrical fires. Uh, I don't think that's in the book. I can't remember. Because I think the base just gets knocked around by the giant squid, and then just like, you know, it's the sea, bad things happen. When yeah. You, when you shake a, an environment that can only work under very specific circumstances. Uh, especially like with all the, the books are read about submarines, it's like, you know, the worst place in the world to die. Because, like, just everything is, you're always losing oxygen. It's really easy to drown or die of decompression or have explosive decompression of your vessel. And fires can just happen anywhere. It's like, oh, we got water in the batteries. Well, that's going to create fire. (laughs) And that's going to burn your oxygen. And that's going to, it's just a cascading effect of everything that's going to kill you. Yeah, and you can't get poison gas loose in a sealed environment yeah. with all the air you have to breathe right and i think of like the uh oh it was the kursk where it's like they had some guys alive down there and they had these things that could 
create oxygen, but if they touch water, they would explode. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It was the, uh, yeah, they were uh, CO2 scrubbers. Yeah. They also had oxygen generating candles. <laughs> um, I don't think the, I think we have those. I don't think the, I think the Russians went with a thing like, yeah, if it drops in water, it explodes. It's like, what's on a submarine for emergency <laughs> use? It's like, yeah, it'll enthuse the men to be efficient and careful. It'll keep you awake. Yeah. But it doesn't. It's hard to stay awake when you're underwater for three days. And running out of air. Yeah. And food and water, ironically. Um, well, you know, when a ship, when a submarine goes down so far before it even explosively decompresses especially the big titanium hulled soviet ones the uh air gets under so much pressure it just bursts into flames <laughs> and that's before this thing crushes it's weird um, russians know all about it they can tell you all the ways <laughs> to die at sea oh yeah they've that's done that, it that's russian testing yep. how did this man die <laughs> Um, it's also great when you put liquid fueled missiles uh, in your uh, submarines where the liquid fuel, if it hits salt water, it forms sulfuric acid that just floats through the air like a gift. Um, and then when you put your helmet on or your mask on, it's like, oh, I want to kind of breathe. It's like, no, the sulfuric acid is eating the filters. Um, you have a little time, like 10 minutes to contemplate what's about to happen, but. Yeah, but we got to, the Americans are going to kill us. Any, it's like, you're going to kill your own people. <laughs> the Americans aren't going to do a thing. Um, the squid starts attacking the base. They don't really show it. They probably, it probably would be a bad idea too. It probably would have looked bad for whatever. Yeah, it worked in the movie because yeah. you just have the, again, the sonar, it's unmanned. And then you can just imagine this giant squid wrapping its tentacles around these, like basically the international space station underwater. <laughs> yeah. Um, and under, you know, a couple thousand, or how many atmospheres of pressure it was under, but a lot. Yeah. Because um, remember, bolts break off and fly around with a velocity of, you know, bullets fired from a high-powered <laughs> rifle at that depth. Uh, so, that's fun. Uh, Barnes sends Ted to the control room. The base starts flooding. Ted releases a valve to increase the pressure uh, because else the base will crush. We crush under the pressure because there's not enough pressure inside the base to keep it from being crushed but then he releases too much so now the base is gonna explode <laughs> um, yeah in a bizarre game of what goes up must come down um, uh so he gets like knocked back and unconscious and so then like beth and norman go to turn the thing to write things yeah barnes tells norman to pull the electrical lever but then like beth is telling him not to this is the part where, like, Barnes is like, no, she's crazy. Don't believe her. She's going to kill us all. <laughs> it's like, that's a intuitive leap. Okay. <laughs> she's trying not to, you know, act. You're standing in briny water from the sea, which means it has a high salt content and everything else. And it's like, let's electrify the base. It's like, immediately I'd be like, no, let's not stand in super conducting salt water and just, yeah, run current through it. <laughs> see what happens um but then the shaking stops without them having to pull the lever uh and then the message pops up i will kill you all uh from jerry and even though there's dangers of, of electrical fires if they pulled the switch 
don't worry, they have electrical fires anyways. <laughs> uh, so now, have to, now they have to put out fires. Harry won't wake up. Uh, Barnes gets trapped because an emergency door is closing. But then Barnes tries to brace one of the doors open, or if it's that door. But then, like, the thing he's bracing with breaks out, and so he gets cut in half by the emergency door. Uh, I don't remember that happening in the book because it seems so stupid for, you know, you know, one of the most cautious, smartest people in this in here to just die so stupidly. He just died like a Friday the Thirteenth teenager. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of silly. <laughs> Uh, Norman gets knocked silly, but then Ted comes in to save him. But then Ted gets hit like with like falling debris in the head again, and then he's like trapped by that debris right under a grate where fire comes up and just like race roasts his face like a flamethrower. Yeah, uh, and a very violent death. <laughs> it's a very grisly death scenes all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, which is like yeah, I think this was a PG thirteen movie, but it's like pretty. There's like. Well, you know, this guy's just getting barbecued a lot. Yeah, and yeah. it's like, yeah. And then and then so for some reason, they, they end on, like, the cameras kind of, like, zooms in on Beth, like, taking in the aftermath. And she's he's like, oh, everybody's dead now. And then I have that being the end of Act 2 because everybody's dead except for three people. <laughs> so we have Act 3. We have Norman is talking to Jerry. And, and Norman's, like, trying to explain death and fear to Jerry. But, you know... Here, Jerry says to stop calling him Jerry, and then Jerry stops talking to Norman. Norman tells Harry that everyone is dead except except for them and Beth because he just woke up and he's just like chilling. Yeah, <laughs> he's just detached from everything. Um, Norman goes to reset the sub. Uh, his diving suit like malfunctions on the way. Beth's not like responding to his screams because she said she was gonna watch him. But Harry gets on the monitor and guards, guards, guides Norman back to the habitat because he's getting like bubbles in his mask so he can't see. Oh, okay. Um, and then a sea snake like shows up and attacks Norman, which is a thing in the book too. Sea snakes are actually genuinely terrifying too. Yeah, <laughs> they're awful. I mean, it's yeah, they explain in the book and they do here, but like, yeah, the most venomous things in the world are like things in the ocean. Yeah. Which in the book they speculate it's because life started the ocean, so it's had more time to develop like more poisonous stuff. <laughs> and they're like, "Hey, give it more time, and then like the land animals will <laughs> will be even more poisonous." <laughs> oh, there's there's things in the ocean like sea snakes where it's like, it's like, is this nerve gas or venom? <laughs> I mean, it's so lethal. It's, there's also clams that are like that too. Uh, Norman gets back inside, and he's in, like, a tired panic. Uh, Beth is missing. They find her, and they talk to her over the intercom. They're, suspic they're suspicious of, like, what she was doing. She gets back inside, but then they're just suspicious of each other. Here, they, Here's where they learn that Beth went inside the sphere, uh, which, at this point, you can guess. Like, oh, if you go inside the sphere, like, things in your subconscious are becoming manifest, but they haven't blatantly pointed that out yet. <laughs> yeah, I remember, because, um, of course, I read the book before the movie um i remember like figuring that out for it was something about jules verne and Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea and as soon as he said it because he was the guy which one was that the guy that was asleep um harry harry as soon as he said it i was like oh so you can manifest your fears into reality i mean i was like 14 years old and it's like <laughs> okay i i see 
I don't see how this resolves, but I see what the problem is now. But like, what's the resolution going to be? This is going to be crazy. It's going to be great. Not um, so much. <laughs> um, so I think Beth leaves, and then like, explain like Beth said like the, the Harry's lying, and like there wasn't food in here. That's why she went to the ship, and then now there is food here. But then like she leaves, but then Norman like. Like, hey, you dropped your book, and he sees that that Harry's already has like twenty thousand league other seed, and then it's like almost like a comical nightmare. Like he just like the books start appearing out of all orifices and everywhere, and it's like, and then like of course Harry's none the wiser. It's like, what's wrong, Norman? It's like those books were always there. They always have fifty thousand copies of this book. Um, but no, I mean here Harry actually doesn't doesn't take note of any of this stuff he just kind of keeps reading they show beth taking some pills which i don't know that scene didn't really need to be there <laughs> now that i think of it because she put some pills in her pocket but then that doesn't go anywhere either yeah <laughs> they're just i think they're just setting up like oh is she gonna like off herself with pills because she's the crazy lady <laughs> um because that's the way she like uh attempted suicide before she just downed a bunch of pills and yeah, called Norman because they were dating at the time, or broke, or just broke up, something like that. Um, no, he was, he was her therapist, <laughs> and they were sleeping together. Both married <laughs> to other people. He's a real sleaze bag. Yeah. For, that's like sleaze bag stuff. Yeah, let's date my patient. The most vulnerable way to do, to do things in the world. Yeah, let's date someone who's it's got problems. Um, Norman goes talk to Jerry. And he's like talking about how like the book doesn't exist past age page eighty seven because Harry said that like he he stops he stops reading at that because he gets too scared because that's when the squid shows up in the book. Uh, he gets the message from Jerry saying stop calling him Jerry. So Norman starts reworking the code cipher that Ted came up with. Beth arms the Panther explosives, <laughs> which I don't remember that that's what they're called in the book. Here it's just a fun thing. It's <laughs> I remember I went and looked. It's like, are Panther explosives like deep sea explosives? And it's like, no, it's just <laughs> oh, it's, it's just a prop thing. Okay. Because I, I looked. I was like, why would they have that on there in big letters? <laughs> are they getting paid by it? Is this like ad placement for underwater high explosives? <laughs> big underwater high explosives. <laughs> Here to control the narrative. <laughs> Norman uh, like recodes the cipher and finds out that like the name's Harry instead of Jerry. And it's like, oh, so they've been talking to Harry's subconscious this whole time. Um, that's being that's posing as an alien for some reason. Uh, Norman has a meeting with Beth explaining the problem with Harry about you know this is basically where they 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 state blatantly like, oh, our thoughts are becoming manifest. So that's what's happening here. It's a, it's not the alien sphere. It's just us. <laughs> Beth and Norman like go through all the drugs in the habitat to try to create a sedative that'll get Norman in a dreamless sleep because they think like it's his dreams that are creating like all the the manifestations. Uh, so in the book, it's weird because like these like black crew members show up guarding his door while he's sleeping. Like they're like 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 these like Amazonian like black women that are like like guarding the door. 
and they're just like subconscious manifestation. And that doesn't happen in the movie. No, <laughs> it would be cool if it did. Because <laughs> I remember when that happened in the book, it was like, wait, where did these people suddenly come from? They're like, oh, it's part of the manifestation. So These were other crew members. Um. <laughs> uh, which that happens a lot in the book, where like, at some point they're ima- someone's imagining being rescued by like Navy SEALs, and they're like, they're on their way, and then they just suddenly disappear. <laughs> it's like, oh, it was a manifestation. Well, remember the autopsies of all the creatures that appear and attack them in the book? Yeah. Where she's like, they don't have like digestive organs and yeah. they can't breathe. And it's like, where does this come from? <laughs> Which here they do that too. But then like she says like, I made a mistake. I found them or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But that's just because that's a further manifestation. And by the way, none of this is very clear. It's, it's all just kind of happening and just we're moving on. <laughs> just keep the camera moving. Okay. So yeah, they get the, they get the, the drugs together and they, they give them the sedative without problems. So like in like in the book, they were stopped by some manifestations. Uh, Beth and Norman, they get a message from Topside that there's like rescue is like a few hours away. Water starts filling the habitat, and Norman gets attacked by some sea snakes. But then Beth just kind of casually strolls in, and while well, he's like screaming, and she just grabs him and says like. They're only dangerous at night. It's like, well, you're a thousand feet on the ocean. How do you know what the f- time of day it is? Yeah, I thought that myself. It's like, oh, it's, how's the sunrise looking in a zone of complete blackness? Um, Beth lures Norman to like a lab and locks him in. She says that Norman is the one manifesting everything. And so she leaves a sedative for him to use on himself, but... He doesn't want to do it and then like the, the lab starts flooding and she's like she floods the lab and it's like cuts off the oxygen and he grabs like a uh like an oxygen mask and one's just like a bottle with a mask on it um which i read some trivia that says like those won't work <laughs> that deep with them. yeah but it's fine i mean yeah. something similar happens in the movie i can't remember or does he just or is he just free breathing trying to swim away no i think he grabs it? something that looks like a medical mask with a uh, bottle on it but okay so yeah, he swims out the hatch, but like, I would say, I think they mentioned it, but basically you're supposed to like, oh yeah, like he just jumped into like freezing cold water and he should really be at death's door by the time he gets in. But he's just kind of tired by the time he wakes his way back into the habitat. So that's fine. And then Beth starts seeing like images on the monitor that like mock her. And so she's like losing her mind. It's actually happening, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Norman wakes his way back in, and he finds, like, um, it's worth on. Norman gets back in the habitat. Harry wakes up. Beth opens the door, and it gets flooded with water, and, like, the dead upper half of Barnes is just, like, floating into her almost comically. It's like, hey, lady. <laughs> Thanks for the ride. <laughs> then she's, you know, she's having a nervous breakdown, because why wouldn't you look at all the crazy stuff? It's like, you're definitely going to die down here. Um... That, but they come together and they, they figure out that they all went in the sphere. They all manifested stuff. Uh, Beth has set up an armed explosives. They're about to go off. So they get in the sub to make an escape. And they are suddenly transported to the spaceship. <laughs> uh, uh, but somehow Norman realizes, like, no, this is an illusion. And so they do just cut back to them just, like, kind of, like, blindly flailing inside the sub. Like, this isn't actually happening, which is kind of... Uh, just kind of hilarious it doesn't really like i think it would work better if they were just like actually transported but yeah 
Yeah, it doesn't. Uh, and it's not, again, it's one of these things where we're just transitioning from one thing to another. And it's like, it's, what, what are they doing now? Oh, okay, yeah, they never really, they didn't teleport. They just hallucinated. All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're able to, like, blindly reach for the reach for the panel and hit a button to do the emergency, like, release. And they start going up. And then the, the explosives go off. I don't know if they're, like, this powerful in the book, but here... They just blow up the spaceship. They blow up the habitat. They yeah. blow up everything. Yeah, so how many explosives did she put her? I don't know. Explosives underwater are wildly, wildly effective, though, yeah. because they have a lot more to compress with water than they do air. So they could be that destructive, but, you know, for the sake of the movie, this is the story. Yeah. Um, and I guess that maybe that goes like, hey, if this airplane is super, like, you know, like, resilient why would an explosion just blow it up and it's like well remember the one guy hit with a hammer it was like okay <laughs> just like newtonian or it's like anti-newtonian like fluid dynamics or whatever it's like so if you hit it softly it won't blow up but if you hit it hard enough it will <laughs> yeah it's this is ships made of non-newtonian metal <laughs> it's like oobleck if it was titanium <laughs> and lead so yeah, they make it back to the surface. They make a point, and they kind of follow it up here, but in the book they make a point. It's like, hey, if you get to the surface and there's not a ship with like the proper docking thing, like you're going to die up there because you have to be basically put into a decompression chamber even though you make it to the surface. You got to get in there immediately or you're going to blow up. <laughs> it says decompression day chamber day one, but then suddenly it's three days later, but they don't like write that on screen. Somebody says it out loud. <laughs> Uh, but I guess it was a reshoot. I guess people didn't believe they could decompress after three days, which I believe in the book it just says you need 90 hours. So um, Never had to decompress. I don't know. <laughs> Apparently, like, the uh, it said, like, audiences said it would take, like, at least two weeks to decompress from that. And it's like, well, how do they know? <laughs> I, thought, I thought Hollywood was famous for thinking all audiences are stupid. <laughs> yeah, who's this test audience you find just... <laughs> Just a bunch of like uh, undersea, you know, <laughs> oil pipe welders that are like, no, no, you see, it wouldn't work this way at all. It's like, oh, great, these guys are in town for their six weeks vacation, watching our movie. Uh, so they get out of the decompression chamber. They're like getting ready for a debrief. So they put them in a room by themselves. Uh, and here's where they're trying to figure out what to tell everyone. Um, in the book, they kind of like come up with a scenario that makes sense. But here they, they don't really like, they don't really do that. They just here's they just figure out it's like, well, humanity can't handle this power where you can just manifest things into existence, and they don't want it to get in the wrong hands. Also, they're like, well, we're still alive, so we need to like not know about this stuff. So let's use the power to forget <laughs> the sphere. So if we forget the sphere, then that will solve all the paradoxes. So they hold hands. And <laughs> <laughs> and then they like count to three and they basically did, you know kumbaya they forgot the sphere and then they just kind of open their eyes and they're like why are you holding my hand <laughs> uh which is kind of how it happens in the book uh in the book that's basically the end of it here you they go they cut to the ocean floor they did say that norman said the sphere blew up but here we see the sphere is fine and then it just ascends out of the ocean uh, all the people on the boat see it, and it just like flies into space, and presumably go back goes back through the the black hole or whatever. So, yeah. Uh, in 
then that's the end of Sphere of the Movie. Also, it's kind of a slight ambiguity in the book on whether uh, what's Beth yeah. gave up the power. Oh, there is? Yeah, there's kind of like a, she seems like, everyone else seems to totally forget, <laughs> but she seems a little more like, because there's doubt there, like, oh, did she come out of it earlier or did she really not give up the power? Huh, okay. But then it's like, it's not followed up on. Yeah, it's yeah. just like. Yeah, there's no sphere too. <laughs> sphere two, double sphere. Because <laughs> um, then in sphere two, you find out like the ship never existed. It was just the manifestation of the imagination of the pilot who they found dead, who was actually a NASA astronaut that was lost on a secret mission that no one knew about. And it was an autistic kid that lived in the snow globe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's just like, sure, why not? Yeah, the, the stuff of the ship is a bit more, way more complicated, especially in the book, because it kept, keeps changing. There's, like, one point where Beth is basically imagining, like, who the crew was, and there's, like, some lady that's, like, six feet tall that kind of looks like her, naked in a cryogenic thing, and then she's like, I think she, I think she was the only one that didn't make a mistake, and that's how she ended up here, and then, because, like, when they first get out there, there's no crew, and then, like, once they start getting the manifestation power, then suddenly there's crews, but it's like reflecting their imagination of what might have happened. Yeah. Um, which is an interesting investigation where you're, where like you investigating it like alters the investigation. <laughs> it's like you have to come up with a theory, and then your theory starts coming true, not because it is, but just because that's how the, this power works. Yeah. Um, but again, they don't necessarily play that up in the movie nor so in the book but well it's supposed to be a series coming up on a streaming service yeah they've supposedly somebody's optioned it for in Uh, 2021 to be but you know then you hear like what warner brothers and hbo max just did and it's like oh okay this is one of the two billion dollars worth of things now they're shelving and not making and not releasing so let's let's pretend we made it and make it a four hundred million dollar tax cut yeah <laughs> but yeah i'd say like yeah the yeah i do I, the book is better but like the book isn't isn't great i mean it's fine science fiction but it's not michael Crichton's best it's just kind of an interesting idea that goes nowhere <laughs> yeah it's not something you'd regret reading casually over a week or so but it's this the movie's like i've been robbed of two hours and 15 <laughs> minutes of my life Watching actors that are good in a movie that looks great yeah. uh, and does build suspense and does su- certain things well, but then the payoff is just like it completely vaporizes. It's yeah. like, no, this is, it's like Bob Newhart woke up and it's, it's <laughs> like, I own an inn in Vermont. It's like, no, you didn't. That's yeah, um, kind of silly. And it bombed at the box office. So yeah. Again, so. But like you said, there's someone's option this for a, I mean, it would make a better TV show because you can just get more into the detail, but yeah, that doesn't always make things better, but it's just more potential for, you know, our favorite thing is, you know, well-crafted exposition. <laughs> well, you could tell a better story if you like explored, like, why did the aliens, is this what destroyed this alien civilization, this power they invested in this fear? Is this a test to see how different people they meet encounter will handle this power? Uh, they're like, there's a lot of ways you could go, yeah. but you don't, you know, it's just, so oh, everyone's just wildly hallucinating weird things. And, um, and then it's like, oh, the best thing to do is forget. And it's like, well, yeah, that's the best thing to ever do. I mean, if the Nazis could have forgotten, 
uh, you know, they would have, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, that's always the best thing to do, but it's not, doesn't make for a very compelling payoff in a, in a movie. But even like, you know, this has, you could see like kind of, um, coming from Star Trek, the motion picture where it's like, you know, V'ger was sitting out there and ends up coming back as like a completely different version of itself. That's just kind of like, it's just seeking out information and then this is what it's become. It's not intentional it's just what happened you know the sphere could be a probe for all we know yeah um although the, in every instance like in the book and the movie they 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 do point this thing out it's like no the ship went out and retrieved this thing it's like they never like it's never mentioned that it's man-made but you know it could be like a double you know some sort of like double time loop thing where it's like the, the sphere is an american ship from like even further in the future captured by a future ship and then that ended up back in the past yeah <laughs> we needed to capture the sphere in the future to dream the ship into existence <laughs> in order to crash into the ocean so that a bunch of nervous guys in the 80s could find it <laughs> I mean, in a book too they had a lot of things like with barnes Barnes was a lot more duplicitous in the book because he would tell certain people certain things, but never yeah. told everyone everything. Because the one lady, I, uh, I think it was Beth, somebody got into computer stuff, uh, and they found out like, well, you know what Barnes really does? Like, he is a technology recovery guy. Yeah. They want to get all the technology off the ship because um, it's also because you know, in the time the book was written, the Soviet Union was still a thing. It's like we can't have the Russians finding this. And now that we know it's an American an American ship, no one can know about it because <laughs> it could like alter things and you know the technology's on here. But it seems like a pretty big leap for you know because it's like the ship's actually from fifty years in the future of nineteen eighty seven. It's yeah. like they made some fantastic leaps in material science, <laughs> but considering we're like what twenty years away from when the ship was made, it's like I don't think we're anywhere close to this kind of shit. So, but that's just you know. Science, especially guys like Crichton always believe in progress in science and yeah. they don't, you know, Crichton was for kind of being a right winger, which he turned out to be at the end of, of, in some of his beliefs, he's like, he never really gave credit to the corrosive properties capitalism has on progress. <laughs> um, Cause it just uh, holds things back sometimes. It's like, no, we can't let the new stuff out. Cause even didn't they say like the, the computers like the displays said they were made by you know intel or something like yeah it was it was like oh yeah these are recognizable manufacturers yeah there's um, like a little joke in the book where they say like it says like diet coke they find a diet coke on the spacecraft and they're like all right i'm investing in that because like it exists 50 years from now and then like look on the back and there's japanese writings like well hold up that means it's got like reacquired like four times so like maybe don't do that <laughs> um Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Crichton was a big Jap Japanophobe, too. <laughs> he wrote two books about how the Japanese are going to steal the world from us. and It's like, well, that turned out to be, like, a complete uh, nonsense. But <laughs> but now it's the Chinese. Um, and now he's dead. So. <laughs> now he's dead, so it doesn't matter. He wrote some great books. I love this stuff. He this the again. This wasn't his best. This was like a better version of this is Arthur C. Clarke's Rendezvous with Rama, yeah, yeah. which uh, was written probably twelve years before this. Yeah. Um, and that's just all mystery. It's like there's yeah. No, 
there's no you don't come to an ultimate conclusion it's just a really cool investigation of this whole mystery that you again you have a limited window to investigate it and yeah all the weird stuff that happens in between is great and then they don't solve anything they just kind of gotta go <laughs> so. yep it's like well our time on the ship is up now it's time for I think he wrote five sequel books to that. <laughs> I think it ended with Garden of Rama. <laughs> yeah, I think like uh, there's probably other successors, but the thing I can think of, I think Andy Weir is like a good successor to like Michael Crichton. Yeah. Um, I mean, his stuff is like almost too, too technical, but it's still great. Yeah, it's uh, his stuff is. Um, Andy Weir's kind of look like what I call like the fast forward uh, techno science fiction writer. Because he's going to stop and explain all this stuff, and then we're going to, like, leap into action. <laughs> and then we're going to stop and have, like, in the middle, right before, like, the mushroom cloud reaches its crescendo. It's like, you know why this happened? <laughs> and then we're going to talk about it, and then the mushroom cloud's going to continue. It's almost like a stop frame. Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, and this is why. Whereas Arthur, or um, Michael Crichton always established, like, core central premises and kind of wrote around those elliptically. It's like, we have this, and we know this can do this. And it was always, Michael Crichton was always, like, vaguely 10 years ahead. So it's like, well, this isn't, like, current, but this is set, like, five years from now, 10 years from now. Or in the case of this, you could set it currently because it's all stuff that hasn't happened yet, like the future spaceship. And I didn't think it was neat in the novel they were explaining black holes. And it's like, okay, yeah, that's it. And it wasn't like, oh, Crichton got it right. Like, no, he was basically just explaining Einstein's theory of relativity and it's like, only just like in the past few years, we've had equipment that could observe it, so we could prove that. Yeah, well, not prove it, but it's like, oh look, this is how space time works. Where it's like the, uh, an object is, you know, an object, an object's mass doesn't attract things purely because it's big and attracts things because it's warping space time. So, uh, which is in the book and. Here we, we've had stuff to, to observe that. So yeah, we're like five percent closer to proving it. Well, we <laughs> a bunch of guys at CERN are five percent closer to proving it. It's not conclusively proven, but it's like trends indicate. Um, and they do have a. Uh, they don't do it here in the in the movie. There's a fun thing in the book where they're explaining like a bowl of fruit and then like a like a uh, what does he have like a ball bearing and like throws it in the bowl and it's like. See, if you throw it fast enough, you go past the plans. But if you're not going fast enough, it'll just roll back into the to the planets. Oh, okay. Yeah, I do remember that. Um, and then the real fun stuff is orbital mechanics. Uh, it's like, hey, if I look at that thing, can I go to it in space? It's like, are you in a planet's gravitational pull? Then no. <laughs> you have to fly in a circle. <laughs> The weird thing where you have to like point your ship away from the thing to get closer to it. <laughs> Can I go to the moon from here? It was like not in a straight line. <laughs> what do you have to do? Fill a chalkboard with equations <laughs> just to know where the moon's going to be. Then you have to design the rocket, <laughs> which is a whole bunch of other equations. Uh, I forget what I, I forget what's the like. I think it was Shepard. They called him like Captain Rendezvous because he figured out uh, orbital mechanics. Because they were having that thing where like they were trying to rendezvous with a with a a uh, like a module in space that they've sent up there, and it's like they're pointing their ship at it and then like going towards it, and they miss it. They're like, "What's going on here?" And then he figured out it's like, "Oh, we're 
traveling in a circle to get to it. We have to increase our circle to get in it. We have to fly away from it to catch up to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's real, real mind. <laughs> yeah, because like on Earth, everything's dead reckoning. It's like, well, there it is, head towards it. Not so much in three dimensions. It doesn't work that way, especially in you know weird you know planetary orbits. But you know, we have to get all the flat earthers up into space and teach them moral mechanics, and then they'll finally believe. <laughs> If you can teach someone who actually believes in flat earth the alphabet, I'd be impressed. <laughs> someone who actually like embraces that. Because again, that's all based on dead reckoning. Hey, this is what I see. <laughs> if I put this pop can down, it's like, it's not going anywhere. This is obviously flat. <laughs> it's like, no, it's being held down because this thing that we're sitting on spinning at 11,000 miles an hour. <laughs> well, I can't see that. It's like, no, it's scalable. Of course you can't. If you could, we would never evolve. <laughs> We'd never stop vomiting. Well, yeah. <laughs> God wouldn't do that to us. <laughs> yes, he would. Um, so, yeah. yeah, like, But I would say that the movie here, like, it is the book. It's just, it's edited so weird. It doesn't feel good. <laughs> no. You feel vaguely ill. This isn't a good movie to, like, I'm getting a pizza. And watching me some sphere, because no, you're gonna be so um, just discombobulated by the end of like what what happened, <laughs> and why did it happen? More importantly, why did this happen? Uh, yeah, that was sphere. That was it. <laughs> so catch it if you want. You know, I said just the book uh, over the movie, but again, they both <laughs> have inherent disappointment in them. <laughs> I think this is all Michael Crichton's only alien type book too. Really? Okay. I don't think he did another like. No. This is as close as he came, which makes sense because it's well, like. Well, I mean, technically, wait, no, Andromeda Age strain technically, but that's not. What's well, alien viruses? Yeah, like it's, it's not uh, like not a we have a plan. <laughs> <laughs> I remember like the cover looked cool. I think it was called Prey. It was like nano machine stuff. I never read that one. It wasn't very good. Okay. <laughs> yeah, as much as I, you know, I like a lot of Crichton stuff, he wrote way more books, and they aren't all good. But. No, there's a lot of ideas yeah. floating around. But yeah, I think this is only like extraterrestrial book. And interestingly, this book was originally written right after the Andromeda Strain. It was almost to be a companion piece huh. to the Andromeda Strain, but he couldn't work it out, so he just did other books and oh, then okay. came back to this as this idea, which became, it's kind of a standalone thing. I mean, well, let's, let's see here. I mean, there's a lot of crying things where it's like, let's gather, perf- you know, the best scientists in the world to try to figure this thing out. But, uh, I mean, it is kind of that way in Jurassic Park. It is that way in Drown in the Strain. It is here in Sphere. Um, not Congo. <laughs> I never read Congo. I just seen, only seen the. What about Airframe? Movie. That was like the best engineers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, Airframe. That's that's what that's probably like, maybe one of the least known Crichton books I love. That was that was a great book, but not because it's like a great story. It's just like, hey, here's a cool way to the, to deliver all this technical detail about airplanes. Yeah. <laughs> but there's like no way to make that movie. It's like. Hey, you know the DC-10 that was like famously for being a terrible airplane? It's actually one of the most safest airplanes ever built. <laughs> Too bad. 
Well, yeah, and then like Boeing is like, hey, let's take an existing airframe, drop the engines a little bit to make them more efficient, and then put weird software in there that prevents a stall by straightening the plane out, even though like the people who were supposed to be flying the plane weren't trained how to use the software, and it just nosedived them into the ground at 400 <laughs> miles an hour because it was trying, it was technically continuing to prevent the stall. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, no, but see, nobody really. I can't even explain that properly. I watched two documentaries on it, and I'm still like, okay, why does it try to, Why? how is nosedive? I understand a stall is bad because you're just going to go into a flat spin because your engines can't throw you forward. So your solution to that is to keep pushing the nose down and then do it, and the more the pilot resists, the more it gets like, caught in a loop. No, must push the nose down. We're going to stall. And then we're just like, nah! and you think the computer would be like no wait another destructive event will occur now but no it just and then boeing tries to blame like pilots from third world countries and like that is the only place it happened but it's also like eh, i don't know it doesn't seem like a good idea to get into a uh well, I remember a logic loop with pilots who have <laughs> seconds to make decisions and there is an override button but you literally if you're not specifically trained on what to do you won't hit it in time. You're going to smash into the ground first. It's... Well, I remember Airbus had problems because the way their cockpit is set up is they don't have like the big yokes like the Boeing does. It's like the, the pilot has a left-handed joystick. The co-pilot has a right-handed joystick. Yeah. They can't see each other steering the plane. And so there's been troubles where it's like, you know, if your co-pilot isn't as trained and you don't see him doing the wrong thing, and you can put your airplane in an airplane in a mountain pretty quickly, uh, whereas with the Boeing's, like, oh, you can see the guy doing the thing. It's like, don't do that. Stop what you're doing. <laughs> you just you're like, oh, oh look at my joystick. <laughs> no, it's my it's my plane. <laughs> we know the difference between like Boeing and like there's a there's a whole philosophical difference there too, because where did Boeing make all its money before? commercial aircraft military aircraft oh yeah yeah. airbus is a conglomerate (laughs) of aeronautical engineers and airbus has a military division they make air combat aircraft over there too but all boeings are just stratofortresses just modernized (laughs) it's 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 like that was their big project that was yeah it's a wide body aircraft that carries you know thirty thousand pounds of bombs it's just (laughs) Now we design planes where the bottom doesn't open because that would piss the passengers off. <laughs> and we're just going to store, you know, a bunch of people. And it's like, yeah, use the same controls and everything. You don't need to to change it. But, yeah, it's it's a completely different philosophy. And m- more aircraft. I mean, I don't know how many other companies countries there are because it's like Airbus and Boeing are the big commercial aircraft people. But more aircraft are designed like Boeing's and Airbus. Because, like, the Russians, they you know, their passenger planes, I mean, th- th- they have all the great Russian stuff. Like, they're wildly dangerous and efficient. But they <laughs> they operate more like a Boeing 747 than they do an Airbus. Because the Russians also made a lot of military aircraft. And it's like, yeah, you just yeah, put the same thing in. <laughs> I, mean, I always like that uh, the, uh, the British engine makers, they, they, like Rolls-Royce. I'm not sure if Rolls-Royce still make the airplane engine. Yeah, that's the only profitable Rolls-Royce that exists. Okay. The Rolls-Royce military engine company and the Rolls-Royce car company, two separate entities now. They <laughs> were one thing at one time, 
but yeah, yeah, the one that makes the giant engines, they're they're the profitable ones. And the other one's Pratt and Whitney, which I don't know if they're still around. But. I think they probably got absorbed. Because <laughs> what do we have now? Like, we're the big military contract. You got like Boeing, and then um, is, Mc, is McDonald Douglas still around? <laughs> I think they all got absorbed into. What's the other one that's not Boeing? It's uh, Lockheed. Yeah. <laughs> Because it's Lockheed, Lockheed Martin. Because, um, yeah, there used to be like five, six different. Now there's like two. Because you got General Dynamics, United Technologies. Those are the big military contractors. And, yeah, they're, they're all absorbed into one one or two different entities. Now, where was it like? Fairchild Republic or something like that. That was a GovCorp. Okay. <laughs> that was yeah. They made the Warthog, and nobody thought they could make money like Boeing and all the other. They're like, we can't make money making the Warthog, so they just built a government corporation called Republic Fair Republic Fairchild. They were a manufacturer in World War II of aircraft, oh, okay. but they kind of like. It's like they resurrected the name and created a board of directors, but essentially, it's like a government. And it's like, we need you to build these A-10 Thunderbolts, which is what they were really called. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, we can make these. And then make a bunch of spare parts because they're going to be in service for like 50 years. <laughs> and, yeah, been around since the 60s. Yeah, and they, uh, <laughs> the Warhog was the only ever, the only aircraft ever planned by the military that actually came in under budget. Yeah. Because <laughs> nobody wanted it, but it had to be created. <laughs> Yeah, I think like the subsystems, like um, General Electric made the engines, and yeah, I think they they set by that, but it was assembling it and putting it out. Like that was all essentially done by the government. Yeah, it's like the post office. Like we're gonna create an organization, and it has to be profitable. But once the A10s were done, it's like didn't matter. Just make us like a hundred years worth of spare parts, because you know we're gonna be flying these things forever. <laughs> I know they've been wanting to replace the C-130s for a long time, but there's like, it's just astronomically expensive. To oh, yeah. It. You're talking about, yeah, procurement program would be half a trillion yeah. dollars <laughs> before you even got it, the first thing off the ground. <laughs> or like the, the Russians are the same thing. The, the, are the Tupolovs still around? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tupolov, Tupolov, Mikoyevin, or what they call MIG. Um, all those still exist, but it exists in that Russian world of reality and fantasy where it's like, no, this is a highly profitable business. It's like, really, who do you sell these to? Oh, the Russian government. Does anyone else buy them? Not directly. Cause now the Indians will buy the frames, but they want to put their own engines in them. <laughs> I mean, well, that's just cause they want a job yeah. environment. It's just like they have, um, Apache, uh, attack choppers in the UK. Yeah. But they're called Augusta Westfield Apache <laughs> because they have a whole different engine. They have a whole different um, combat suite in them and everything. But it's, you couldn't tell them apart. It's like, oh, it's an Apache. It's like, well, kind of. We sold them <laughs> the, like, the frame and then they put their own in because it's just a jobs thing. Which is why as soon as the, like, oh, we got to hurry up and get this war in Afghanistan over because we think so Russians are mount, massing troops at the Ukrainian border. It's like, well, well, okay, so yeah, in the in the uh, 
Afghan war, and then it's like immediately our defense sub our contractors are bailed out by we're giving money or giving weapons to the Ukrainians. It's like yeah, that's just keeps rolling. <laughs> that whatever company makes javelin missiles, they got contracts for the next twenty years because <laughs> we've about given them all away. We, <laughs> we, because everyone thinks we have like two million of those things in inventory or something. No, they only have like ten thousand of them. Right, as we can see, they're wildly effective. So build more. Yeah. Well, that's why the Stinger missile, they were going to dump that before the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and then, and then us help, helping the Mujahideen with those. Because yeah. they were like, these are really expensive per unit. <laughs> I think at the time it was the most expensive per unit, like man portable anti-air rocket you could and they're like oh this is too expensive we got to get rid of this and then all of a sudden it's like wait we know where we can field test these <laughs> against the equipment we actually want to destroy it's like two for one it's like what's the downside giving anti-air missiles to terrorists but <laughs> we can work around that <laughs> yeah but when you're spending like fifteen hundred dollars to shoot down a 23 million dollar helicopter it's like Oh no! When the um, when the stingers, because I think the stingers they gave the mujahideen were the first generation into the second. They were like ten thousand dollars in seventies bucks. Like they were, like it had something to do with how, because it used it was radar guided. Yeah, and it was like it wasn't the the warhead or the it was like the battery to power that <laughs> to stay in it long enough and be useful it was like really 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 expensive so it was like why does this missile cost so much it's like we got an $8000 battery in it it's like why does it have to cost that much cuz it has to be shelf stable for years and it's like oh cuz we can't send these out and they're like well this one doesn't work give me another one you know so yeah, it's it's what saved though. It's, it's like the, the law rocket too. Now that's a dumb, that, that's not guided, but that had a real expensive development because as soon as they like were ready to go in production, and then it's like, oh, they've introduced this new armor. Shit. This thing isn't gonna work. So then they had to like half as they're about ready to commit to production, they had to change the design. And yeah, there's a lot of those '80s and '70s weapon system stories where it's like. We always think the the Soviets were the buffoons. It's like, oh no, we we screwed up just as much as they did. Only our screw ups didn't lead to like the death of fifteen hundred people or something, um, or at least not fifteen hundred of our people. It was always go test this. Nice. If you like what you heard, yeah. If you if you if you if you've enjoyed this. You can find us at anchor.fm slash barrel effect uh, or whatever po- podcast platform of your choice. You rate us on that platform. You rate us whatever you want, but the only thing to listen to is the highest rating. Remember, you control the algorithm. The algorithm doesn't control you. You also have at barrel we have listener support where you can support us a month of stipend of either 99 cents, 499, or 999. We're also at Twitter at barrel effect, Facebook barrel effect. You can find us on YouTube, the American Greed Factory. You can do both that show and this show live and unedited. Um, and we also have t-shirts at below the co- below the collar.com slash greed factory. So for the very having effect podcast, I'm Colin. And I'm Nathan. Goodbye, America. Goodbye, America. <laughs>